It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan, and this is the second part of the first installment of our new science series, which we're calling Sparks. In part one, you heard 538 science team discuss the book Galileo's Middle Finger by Alice Dreger. And today, we're going to hear Christy Ashwanden, 538's lead science writer, talk to Alice Dreger herself. They'll discuss what happens when science and culture clash in complicated issues like medicine and gender identities. Dreger, by the way, is a science historian and bioethicist and activist, and this is kind of a chance to hear her discuss some of how this book came together. You don't have to have heard part one in order to enjoy this part, though, of course, you can always go back and listen. If you haven't, just promise to come and listen to this when you're done. Anyway, here we go. Alice Dreger and 538's Christy Ashwanden. Hi, Alice Drager. Welcome to Sparks. You are our inaugural guest on this new podcast about science and ideas. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. I feel very honored to be your inaugural guest or a guest at all. Well, uh, earlier today, we had a, a wonderful time discussing your 2015 book, Galileo's Middle Finger, which is about your work on some scientific controversies. And it seems as though a unifying theme here was really um, what happens when people encounter inconvenient or unwelcome facts. So when you're working on intersex issues, and these are people born with genitals that don't fit neatly into our conceptions of male or female, your research led you to believe that the medical establishment was really treating these physical variations incorrectly. And along the way, you made this what seems like a deliberate decision to become an activist. I wondered if you could walk me through that decision. What made you feel like you needed to speak up? So intersex doesn't just include people who have genital types that are between the male and the female, but it also includes people who have one type of sex very clearly on the outside, but inside may have parts of the other sex. So what was going on, this was in the mid-1990s, the intersex rights movement had started, and it was a patient's rights movement directed at trying to change the medical system. The medical system at the time favored lying to patients about their medical history out of the belief they couldn't handle it, changing people's bodies in infancy so that they would never know that they had been born intersex. And it was leaving a lot of people with a lot of psychological trauma, but also a lot of physical trauma. So as I looked at what we knew, what I found was that we didn't have a lot of data that this was necessary or safe or effective. And what we did have was a lot of anecdotal data from individuals who had been through the system who said it left them not only physically harmed, but really profoundly ashamed of themselves in ways that weren't necessary. So that's what really motivated me to get involved was them contacting me because I'd done historical work in this area about 100 years before this, and they asked me to help change the system. So was it really your interactions with these people that... that that made you sort of as passionate as you became about this? Well, I got more passionate as the time went on because I kept running into doctors who kept telling me I just didn't get it, and I thought I did get it. What happened was I got kind of swept into the movement, and I thought it would only take maybe six months to change the medical system. It was so out of step with what was going on otherwise in terms of sexual health, in terms of medical ethics with regard to truth-telling. So I really thought that it would not be very difficult to bring it up to date. And what I kept running into was doctors telling me parents could not possibly handle a child whose body was different this way, that you couldn't possibly raise children as boys or girls if their bodies didn't perfectly fit the social expectations. And so the more I ran into that, the more I got annoyed because I could tell that they were wrong about this. Historically, as a historian, I knew that people had, in fact, done okay before the era of all these surgeries, and that you could be raised and see yourself as a boy or a girl without these kinds of surgeries. 
Yeah, one thing that I found really interesting in your book was just the history of this, and that it isn't a recent thing. I mean, of course it isn't, right? It's natural biology, but just that the sort of social norms around this have changed so much over the years and the centuries. Yeah, that's really true. So in the past, basically, Western culture didn't talk about it, um, but it basically just dealt with it in the sense that the assumption was everybody had to be raised as boys and girls, and so people sort of did best guess, and they moved on from there. Different cultures have dealt with it differently. So some cultures have had recognized third gender systems um, and some cultures have been very negative and have tried to essentially get rid of kids who have this sorts of situations. So in some um, more traditional cultures, there's been just basically neglect of these children. So it's different depending on the culture. And it seemed to me that in the modern age, we could have a pretty good attitude in terms of recognizing these are natural variations. So if there are medical concerns that come with it, which there sometimes are, let's deal with those medically and let's deal with the stigma and the social issues separately. So do you feel that scientists and scholars have an obligation to speak up on issues that they're studying? I'm thinking of this, um, for instance, in the context of something like global warming or an issue that, that comes up in public life. I don't think you necessarily have a moral obligation to do that unless there's something really dramatic going on. But in many cases, a lot of people who are scientists or scholars like myself, when they come upon something that seems really irrational, they get moved to doing advocacy or sometimes even activism, which is more hardcore from my point of view, because they see something that just seems so stupid. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the tendency among smart people, I think, is to look at stupid things and say, oh, come on, let's let's be rational about this. Let's try to figure out what we know, what we don't know, and try to make our policies fit our reality. And that's a lot of what this book is about, is what the problems are when you basically do ideology-based policy instead of doing reality-based policy. Yeah, that's right. And it it sort of reminds me of a passage in the book um, where you're talking about... um, you know, you you are working to stop the practice of performing cosmetic genital surgery on, on infants, on intersex infants, and and you write that you you actually stopped and questioned yourself. You know, what would you do if if the evidence showed that people were better off with these surgeries rather than without them, as you were you were pushing for? And you said that you decided that you accept you would accept what the facts show. But I just wonder, like, how do you really do that? It, it's one thing to say that you're going to do that, but it's, it's really easy to become entrenched. And how do you ensure that your mind is truly open to new evidence? I think you can never be truly open. And that's part of the reason why you've got to get into conversations with people who are likely to disagree with you, because I think they're really good at finding your blind spots and finding your mistakes. So what you have to be open to is not necessarily evidence per se, because it can be hard to be open to evidence. What you have to be open to is relationships and criticism. And through those, you end up seeing the evidence that you're otherwise missing. So it's really Mm -hmm. critically important to go to places where you're kind of the enemy and to try to have conversations with people, because then you can try to figure out, well, why are they seeing it the way they're seeing it? And what criticisms do they have of me? And as you know, I recount in the book several cases in which (laughs) I am essentially the enemy in a particular territory. It's very unpleasant, but I always end up learning a lot in those places. Right. Um, and so what have you learned from, from these conversations with the enemy? And I'm curious to know, you know, in the book, you, you describe in great detail sort of what happened in some of these discussions. But I'm wondering sort of what you've learned about how evidence is presented or, or sort of the way, because it's not just the facts themselves, right, or, or the evidence. It's really the stories that we tell about them and how they're presented. So how, how do you use these concepts? when you're when you're going to the quote unquote enemy to try and convince them. You know, it's tricky because one of the things that I know from having studied this stuff is that the stuff that persuades people is not 
very scientific a lot of the time. So part of what persuades people is individual stories. So in the case of the intersex rights movement, bringing individual stories to physicians is what started to open them up and started to change their minds. It was not any kind of massing of data or any kind of really careful historical research even. It was individual stories from the current day that really began to move them. And then ironically, what really moved a lot of them was a novel. It was Jeffrey Eugenides' Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, uh, Middlesex. And Middlesex, yeah. I, yeah, so ironically, this fictional story ended up moving a lot of physicians to re-examine what they were doing, which was very frustrating to me at some level because here I had been bringing them historical information and scientific information and contemporary stories, oral histories, but what moved them was fiction. And yet I kind of understand that because fiction in some ways was non-threatening to them. It wasn't a real patient with a real doctor who had screwed up. And also because it presented an entire life, it allowed them to see the ways that intersex is just part of a life. It's not a whole life. And so it really opened them up in many ways. That that really surprised me. I had underappreciated at that point how important art is in terms of changing the way people think about medicine. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the way you frame that, that art art can make a difference. And I wonder, has this, you know, has this recognition changed the way that you're approaching these sorts of things now? <laughs> I should say it has because uh, I've reached the point in terms of getting caught in transgender debates that I've decided the only way to deal with this is to write a novel. So I'm uh, working on a novel uh, of all of that. My my partner, my husband, is the person who said to me that it had reached the point of such absurdity that the only way it could be dealt with was through art. And I found mm-hmm. that really shocking when he said that. But then I thought about Middlesex and the ways in which sometimes the only conversations we can have are actually begin through art and they don't begin necessarily through science. And it seems really strange for me saying that because I am a historian of science. I'm a total science geek. My life is all about science. So to say that sometimes we need to inject art in order to begin the scientific conversation is really weird. <laughs> I, I believe it. I have a dear friend who's a science fiction novelist, and um, I think he's gotten a lot more people to to go look at uh, water law than I have in my journalistic writings. So, um, you know, people, the human brain connects to evidence and connects to things, connects to the world with stories. So it does. I, I think and I think, it's... you know, people writing fiction about extinctions, about nuclear holocausts, about all these kinds of things actually do get people to begin to think about, well, what do we know? and What do we not know? So it has a real usefulness in culture. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of evoking empathy, too, that I think, um, you know, it's very hard to do with facts. Yes, you're absolutely right, especially when people are in a defensive position, when what you're saying to them is they've been doing something wrong. It's really hard for people to hear criticisms if what we're talking about is a criticism of something that they've done, because so many of the people we're talking about, they're professionals, and so their personal identities are very much wrapped up with their professional identities, and trying to change practice can be extremely difficult in fields like medicine, because There's a lot of emotional um, valence to having done things a particular way. There's legacies with regard to mentors. There's issues of not having wanted to feel like they've harmed patients. And so there's a lot of emotional work that has to be done. And I had underappreciated that when I set off beginning in this work thinking, oh, we'll just have to show them what we know and they'll see what (laughs) we see and it will all magically change. That didn't happen. Right. Yeah, I have to tell you, I laughed out loud um, while reading your book when there was a passage when you said something thing about, well, at least medicine is evidence-based. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, it's sort of evidence-based. You know, I, I right. do, I have mentioned to people the first time I ever heard the phrase evidence-based medicine, I remember my, my partner was in medical school at that time and I stopped him and I asked, wait, 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 what else is there? And he said to me, everything you've <laughs> ever known. <laughs> I was kind of horrified. Right. But then the more I started studying it, the more I realized that most of uh, American medicine, in particular at that time, that was 20 years ago, did not have a strong evidentiary base to it. It was done based on cl- what's called clinical wisdom, clinical judgment, which was kind of the, this is the way we've done it. It seems like it's worked out right. And so they do it that way. But the truth is in medicine, you need epidemiological studies in order to know what really works and what really doesn't work because a doctor cannot, from a few series of cases, really be able to discern what's safe and what's effective. That's right. That's right. And as I was reading the section in your book on transgender identity, I'm, I'm curious, I guess I have two parts to this question, whether you, you think that there are sort of uh, quantifiable um, pieces of evidence here to, to support or to kind of say which which theory is right. And then the second part of that is what is the evidence that for you was really convincing that Bailey and Blanchard were right? Yeah, so we first have to explain what Bailey and Blanchard were talking about that was so and is so controversial. And that is um, that the work originally came from Ray Blanchard, who's a Canadian sex researcher, and he was dealing with a very large population of men who were coming to his clinic seeking reassignment as women. So these were people who were seeking um, to be recognized as transgender and to be assisted with interventions. And Blanchard noticed that they split into a sort of two-part population. The one part of the population was men who had been extremely femme as children, had been very much into traditional um, female interests, into spending a lot of time with their mother, taking the typical female social roles, et cetera, et cetera. And they grew up to be very specifically attracted to males. That's called androphilic in sex research. And so Blanchard called these um, people homosexual, although I find that somewhat confusing because after he assisted them with transition, they appeared to be straight women. The other population was a population of um, people born male who were not typically female as children and who grew up and often married, often had children, and often had male typical professions and interests. But they had an arousal pattern that meant that they were um, sexually aroused at the idea of being or becoming women. And these he called autogynephilic because the idea gynephilic means attracted to females, but auto lending an element to also being interested yourself and being a female. And so what he was talking about was talking about transgender in the male-to-female population as being something that wasn't only about gender identity but had a core erotic component to it. Historically speaking, the transgender movement had desexualized transgender and had made it so that they were just talking about gender, just talking about the brain of one gender born into the body of the other because it was a politically more successful way to talk about it because it seemed to cause people to not be hostile. Anytime you're talking about sexuality, people start to get hostile. And so mm-hmm. what Blanchard was putting forward was pretty challenging to that narrative. Now, Blanchard was just publishing in the obscure scientific literature, in the clinical literature, so only clinicians were paying attention to this. But in 2003, Michael Bailey at Northwestern published a book called The Man Who Would Be Queen, which was a popularized account of lots of different science that he had studied. And one of the things he published was Blanchard's work and talked about how he thought that Blanchard was correct. And he used case studies to illustrate this. And so this caused a great uproar among certain parts of the transgender community because it was the idea that he was supposedly talking about them as if they were fetishists or as if they were not really having an appropriate reason to transition, even though, in fact, Bailey and Blanchard both felt very strongly that this was an absolutely legitimate reason to transition if it left somebody in a better place in terms of their sense of self, in terms of their social life, that it was a fine reason to transition if it made sense for that individual. 
So one of the key things that they were talking about was that transgender isn't an on-off thing. It's a situation where for some people transition will make sense, for some people other ways of life will make sense. And what kind of convinced me that they were correct was both looking at the substantial literature that Blanchard had, looking at the arousal studies that Bailey had done following up, but then also looking around at the narratives that existed at the time in terms of where people had come from, narratives that had not been sort of cleaned according to what the standard story was supposed to be. And it seemed to really make a lot of sense in that way. Did you feel any sort of obligation as you were looking at this and sort of weighing in to consider that sort of um, historical context and, and, you know, some of the bigotry and things that exist in, in our society? Yes. And when I published about it, I specifically did publish about that. And I did in the book as well, talked about the ways in which the fear that folks had about letting Blanchard's ideas out there into the public could lead to a backlash, that those are legitimate fears. And this is part of the challenge, right, is that any time you bring scientific work that challenges a dominant narrative, what you end up doing is causing discomfort for the people who have been telling the story that you're not telling. What you're doing is injecting a story that is very different in terms of the story these folks want to tell. And it's very it's very difficult to say that to people. So what is your obligation? Well, one, one thing we could say is, well, it's going to hurt people's sense of self and their feelings and their relationships and their social rights, then we shouldn't talk about it. But where I come down, having done the study of all these people who got in trouble, is that, no, in fact, we have to push, and we have to push to where the reality is, because in the long run, everybody will be better off, but also because we can't simply decide what is true based on what feels comfortable. We have to actually pursue what is really true. Yeah, you seem to have a lot of comfort with discomfort, I have to say, (laughs) with all of these things, these controversies that you've come through. Yeah, one of my colleagues refers to my having alligator skin. And I, I suppose that's true, but it that's not to say it's not very uncomfortable a lot of the time. I, I do feel incredibly uncomfortable a lot of the time, and less so mm-hmm. with the people who are angry with me because I'm reporting on things that they did that were not appropriate, more so with the people whose stories get caught in these big controversies and I'm saying something that is worrying to them or upsetting to them. Those Those are the folks who I feel like you know, they get they get kind of caught in the middle in these wars between folks, and that's a very uncomfortable thing. So I try as much as possible to be sensitive to that and respond to mail and respond to conversations and all of that and, and keep in that. But at the same time, I think we can't at the end of the day just decide, well, this is too politically challenging for us to talk about their reality. That's just not a safe place to go. What about when you're assessing the evidence here? Um, you know, so again, here, the evidence for the transgender um, identity you know, issues really comes from, from the people themselves, right? And so it feels a little bit different to me, you know, assessing evidence on, say, Blanchard's theory versus something that has sort of a quantifiable endpoint, you know, in terms of numbers or outcomes, etc. Um, did you feel that too? Certainly, narrative um, stories are a weaker form of evidence, we feel like, than something that you can measure right in a pipette with a particular level. But that said, Bailey and other folks had followed up with some other kinds of studies, for example, arousal studies, looking at the sexual arousal patterns. And the way they do that is to test genital blood flow in response to various kinds of pornography. And what they found was Mm -hmm. that what Blanchard had described was actually consistent with what they found in the lab. And I think that's one of the reasons to think that they, they basically have it right. Part of the huge problem here is that the rejection of talking about this is about sexual shame. And so Mm -hmm. part of what 
I try to do and part of what Bailey's tried to do is to talk about the ways in which it may feel like what we're saying is against transgender rights, but we actually think what we're doing is saying, no, transgender people have the right to sexual lives and they have the right to having their sexual lives be part of who they are at a core level. Everybody else is entitled to do that and they should not be denied that. So there are different ways to think about this. I know we get portrayed in some venues as if we're these sort of dinosaurs and regressives. I think Bailey and I tend to think of ourselves as actually more progressive because what we're saying is that people do have a right to think about the sexual aspects of their lives and that sexual aspects of your lives should be a perfectly legitimate thing to take into consideration when you're considering whether or not transition will assist you in your life, whether that will leave you better off. And for many people, it does leave them better off. In fact, Blanchard is one of the people who did studies to show that well-screened individuals who are allowed access to transition end up better off psychologically. Um, They end up better off socially. Their lives are improved. And that's why I think of it as something that should be funded by medical insurance because it really does improve people's lives psychologically. Yeah, so there again, it's something that you would think would be welcomed and yet it it wasn't. Yeah. Not at all. So, yeah. In fact, I, I still am, you know, it's it's still the biggest controversy in my life of all the stuff that I've studied and all the stuff I've been through. It's still the one that causes me the most trouble. That means that I have to have bodyguards at some of the talks that I give because threats are phoned in. Um, that, you know, causes people interviewing me on the radio to say to me, can you please explain to me why you count as a problem? And I have to try to explain it to them. It's difficult to explain. So it's been the hottest, biggest, most difficult thing I've ever dealt with in that sense. Although I don't think it's been the most um, historically complicated story, nor has it been the one that's been the most important to me in terms of the, the actual labor of doing the history work. Um, which of these things that you've worked on are you most proud of? I think that that would be the dexamethasone work, which takes up the third section of the book. So the first section of the book is the first big controversy is largely about intersex. Then there's a section about the transgender stuff. Then there's a section on the controversy in anthropology. And I explore other scientists' um, controversies as well. And then this work on dexamethasone, which is um, – it was a prenatal is a prenatal treatment sometimes offered to women who are at risk of having a child with a particular intersex condition, and it's one in which the females can be born between the sexes. And um, what happened was a major researcher, pediatric endocrinologist, had been pushing a particular prenatal treatment on mothers using the steroid dexamethasone, getting them to take it starting in the first trimester of pregnancy to try to prevent the intersex condition. And um, in theory, I don't have a problem with that. I think life is probably simpler if you're born without intersex. So in theory, let's say there's no problem with that. The problem was that she was telling mothers and fathers of these um, future children that this had been found safe for mother and child through large studies, and there were no such large studies, and it had not been found safe for mother and child. And more to the point, this researcher, Maria New in New York, had been taking federal funding saying she needed money to study these families to find out if it had in fact been safe. So these were parents who had been put through what she understood to be an experimental procedure without being told that it was experimental and then used for research fodder later in retrospective studies. And I just found that outrageous. And so I tried to, with my colleagues, contact the federal government, the FDA, and the Office for Human Research Protections and get them to take action. But um, for reasons I explained in the book, the investigation was kind of rigged. 
and they decided that there was right. nothing interesting here. And then I ended up spending about three years doing a major research project using the Freedom of Information Act to try to find out what really happened. And what really happened was what I said, but also even more disgusting than that in terms of the amounts of misrepresentation made to various parties with regard mm-hmm. to what we knew and didn't know about this fetal treatment. Now, mind you, this was a fetal intervention done specifically with the goal of changing fetal development. So this wasn't like what we see every day, which is mothers who need to take drugs um, for their own health, take something and expose the baby right. kind of by accident. This was specifically directed at trying to take embryos and change the way they would develop. And because this is an autosomal recessive condition, which means only one out of four of the fetuses would have it, and only the girls are affected, which means only one out of eight really could benefit, seven out of eight of the embryos and fetuses um, exposed to this steroid prenatally in the first trimester were exposed with absolutely no chance of benefit. And there's data coming out of Sweden now that shows us that they probably, many of them were probably physically quite harmed by this, including in terms of cognitive development. The Swedish study, right, which is the right. only study we have that's a prospective study, shows a 7% mental retardation rate. Whether or not that will pan out, we don't know, because in this country, basically, it hasn't been studied in any kind of scientifically meaningful way. There's been no efficacy, efficacy study ever done with a placebo. So there's been no reasonable efficacy study, which is just stunning. Pregnant women and fetuses are not supposed to be experimented upon in this way with lousy science, with a dangerous drug. It's just stunning what's happened. And the thing that really struck me reading that section was just that this really seemed to be a matter of of not informing, you know, patient consent not not being truly given, you know, that that the women consenting to this treatment weren't given the full information about about what's known and what's what's not known and they were sort of misrepresented and you know people are really given something with with the idea that this is going to help them and there's a reluctance on the part of the medical establishment to you know be upfront about the uncertainties that that exist with almost every intervention right absolutely the uncertainties but also the conflicts of interest where people are getting their funding from the relationships they sometimes have with device or with drug makers all sorts of things that have turned me into an extremely skeptical patient i have to say my my own yeah. gastroenterologist was recently offering me a powerful antibiotic for a gut problem that I have. And I started asking him all these questions about where his funding comes from and where his residence funding comes from and where his department's funding comes from and whether or not he was planning to use me later as a retrospective right. case. To st- and he just looked at me like I was from outer space and he said to me, what's happened to you that you're asking me all these hostile questions? I, bet. I said to him, I, oh, I could give yeah. you my book. Um, but I told them I'm right, a very skeptical right. patient because I know how often it is the case that doctors do something that they say is clinically wise, but later that you're entered into a retrospective study. You don't even know you're in a study. Later they use your, your chart right, to study what right. in fact happened to you. It's called retrospective chart review, and you will never be consented for that research. And in many cases, you're never even told the truth at the outset, what's going on with the risks, with the unknowns. It's very disturbing been wonderful having you here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Really appreciate it. That was Christy Ashwanden and Alice Dreger, author of Galileo's Middle Finger. And that's the end of the first installment of our new series, Sparks. So if you have any comments or thoughts or ideas, get in touch, podcasts at 538.com. But I'm very excited that this is going to be happening once a month from here on out. And we'll see you soon.